Welcome to Season 2 of History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice-cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off the work we go. Welcome back, boys and girls. Again, get the carpet squares, graham crackers, and juice boxes ready. It is another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. And just like last time, we are here on the hallowed grounds of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, um, the bloodiest battle in U.S. history, not the bloodiest day, but the bloodiest battle in U.S. history, and the turning point of the war. And the last time... We spoke to you. I believe we left off with the Compromise of 1850 and the country dealing with this problem. How do we deal with new territory coming into the Union? Is it going to be free or is it going to be slave? If you are a Southerner, if slavery is not expanding, it is dying. And if you give the federal government the power to regulate slavery in the territories, then why wouldn't they also have power to regulate slave in the, uh, slavery in the states and possibly get rid of slavery in the states? If you're a northerner, you do not want slavery in the territory. You want free labor. You do not want to compete with slaves in the territories. You want that open to free men to go out and make an honest living with their back. And this is the problem we're facing in 1850. Um, are we a free country? Are we going to be a slave country? And we compromise in 1820. We're trying to compromise in 1850, but the clock is running out. Uh, and the bonds that are holding us together, that are holding the North and the South together, are snapping. And we're going to lose the last one, and that is the political bonds that hold us together. Um, so even though Clay and Webster usher through the compromise of 18, uh, 1850, again, bringing California as a free state, uh, New Mexico and Utah are going to be open to popular sovereignty, but no big deal anyway. That's okay because you're not going to have slaves in New Mexico and Utah anyway. You get a new fugitive slave law. The slave trade is outlawed in the capital, and Texas will be forgiven debt. Bada boom, bada bing, problem solved. No civil war. Well, maybe not quite, <laughs> right, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, once they allow residents of an area to vote— uh, and then you have uh, people going into uh, Kansas and Nebraska, especially Kansas, which gets nicknamed Bleeding Kansas, uh, trying to convince their neighbors uh, and people not maybe not who didn't even uh, live in these states uh, to outsiders, trying to convince people uh, the way they should vote uh, or uh, giving the choice between voting a certain way and getting out or dying. I believe uh, is Kansas where John Brown hacked to death right. several slave uh, holders. Um, and, and so the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, it, it doesn't uh, solve the problem. In fact, it leads to an outbreak of, of violence between the two opposing groups. Now, fortunately, I say ironically, we have the election of James Buchanan in 1856. <laughs> And he's from uh, Matt and I's uh, hometown right now, Lancaster, uh, PA. And he's often rated by historians as the worst president in American history. And you might be wondering, well, why? I mean, why would this particular Democrat uh, be rated as the worst president in American history? 
Well, this is in 1856, what I'm going to read you from his inaugural address. The voice of the majority, speaking in the manner prescribed by the Constitution, was heard. An instant submission followed. Our own country could alone have exhibited so grand and striking spectacle of the capacity of man for self-government. He's talking about our resolution of the problem of slavery. What a happy conception, then, was it for Congress to apply this simple rule, that the will of the majority that we have mentioned in the Kansas and Nebraska Act shall govern to the settlement of the question of domestic slavery in the territories. In other words, for James Buchanan, we've done it. Problem solved. We have solved the problem of slavery. Now, James Buchanan is the Betamax of presidents. (laughs) Usually, a president is rewarded, in in, in at least retrospect, for, um, you know, the clearness of their vision. And a lot of times you've heard the phrase, ahead of their time. (laughs) James Buchanan didn't know what time it was. And he's soon to be disabused of his notion that the problem of slavery is solved by the Dred Scott case. Right. So if we take a step, look, let's look at Kansas, Nebraska for a second, because a lot of people, historians will look at Kansas, Nebraska as the opening shots of the Civil War. Um, this was an argument over where the Transcontinental Railroad was going to be uh, completed. Is it going to be a northern route or a southern route? And one of the benefits of a southern route, it was going through all established territories with territorial governments. And the north did not have that available to them. Well, to solve that problem, Stephen Douglas says, well, we'll bring Kansas and Nebraska into the union. We'll establish them as territories. And then we will have the same benefit in the north as in the south. The problem is Kansas and Nebraska both fell under the jurisdiction of the Compromise of 1820, and therefore both should be free. Well, you can imagine that the South is not going to go for that. So what Douglas does, he says, all right, we'll open this idea of the popular sovereignty, which, number one, is going to get rid of the Compromise of 1820, because the Compromise of 1820 should apply to Kansas and Nebraska. Stephen Douglas thinks that this will be easy that Kansas will vote to be slave, Nebraska will vote to be free, and will maintain some sort of balance, and Kansas and Nebraska will come into the Union as organized territories and eventually states. What he drastically, drastically underestimates is the passion that is out there. Free slave and anti-slave people flood into Kansas. And as Jeff pointed out, you get what we call bleeding Kansas, where people are going to be hacked to death. People are going to be shot and killed this is a precursor to the Civil War, that what the passion is out there that politicians simply did not see. That's in 1854. 1852, we get Uncle Tom's Cabin and Harriet Beecher Stowe stoking the morality of slavery. Um, and at the end of that book, Simon Legree is going to beat to death John, not John Brown, um, Uncle Tom is going to beat Uncle Tom to death in this very powerful scene if you've ever read the book. And apparently even the Queen of England cried when she read it. So you have Uncle Tom's Cabin. You have uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Um, Then James Buchanan, who completely misreads everything that's going on. And then to stoke the flames even more, Dred Scott versus Sanford, which many people consider the worst Supreme Court case in our nation's history, um, stoking it even further. Kind of like, keeps poking the bear, if you will. 
on Kansas Nebraska. So you want you want to talk about Dred Scott? Or you want me to handle oh, Dred go, Scott? You can go ahead. All right. Well, Dred Scott was a slave. Uh, he was purchased and taken into free territory for an extended time. The territory was made free by the original Northwest Ordinance under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, he was moved to new territory, and that territory was free by the Missouri Compromise. Um, Scott sues for his freedom. Uh, the state of Missouri um, says no. You can't be free, uh, which is kind of interesting because the state of Missouri tended to side with people, slaves that were in uh, free territory for an extended period of time. So this, um, the case goes to the Supreme Court and we get a case Scott versus Sanford because now uh, Scott has been bang- banged around a little bit to different owners. All right. So here it sets up. Roger Tawney is chief justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, he's a Southerner. He's from Maryland. He's pro-slavery. He sees this as uh, a great opportunity for the Supreme Court to speak uh, and solve this problem of slavery. Is it constitutional? Isn't it? What are the roles of the government? So first thing he says is the first question you have to answer, does Scott even have a right to a case in the Supreme Court? To this, Roger Taney says, no, he is a slave. Because he is a slave, he has no rights of citizens. And because of that, he has no right to bring this case before the Supreme Court. This case is now thrown out and it should be over now. And if this were Tani's decision, we would not be talking about this. But this is where Tani goes off the rails. Tani then goes on to make decisions that Congress never had the right to regulate slavery in the territories. So the Northwest Ordinance of uh, 1787 with um, under the Articles of Confederation, gone. Uh, the uh, Missouri Compromise, gone. You cannot regulate slavery. Now with the Missouri Compromise going, legally, every territory is now open to slavery. Now, obviously, people aren't going to take their slaves into territories. That's dangerous. You're making lots of money on the plantations with your cotton plantations. So there's no way you're going to pick up 100 slaves and take them into Nebraska or some other place. Well, someplace that was variantly anti-slavery. Right. I mean, you could get your slave shot, and then that's going to be a huge loss of investment. So even though the Supreme Court case had really had little impact on everyday life, it was a bombshell to people, especially in the North, to say, what? The federal government can't regulate slavery in the territories? It had been doing that for, good Lord. For, for almost 60 years, 80 years, they've been regulating slavery in the territories. It's been a power they had from the beginning. So this is a bombshell. Right. And, it, and it's going to lead, uh, not surprisingly, to uh, uh, more calls for abolition, more abolitionists uh, stirring up slaves. And we mentioned John Brown, who had uh, killed pro-slavery uh, people in Kansas. He's going to lead a raid on Harper's Ferry. His goal is actually to incite uh, a slave rebellion. He feels that once he has possession of weapons in the armory at Harper's Ferry, uh, slaves will flock to him and he can start an insurrection. And this is crazy, right? I mean, he believes he is going to march down to an arsenal in Harper's Ferry. I'm going to get guns, and somehow all the slaves in that area will kind of like their their slave radar will go up, and somehow know I'm there. They'll rush to me. I will arm them, and then God somehow will lead this army of slaves. There's no social media. No. Yeah, and there's no radio. I mean, there's no way, and 
Uh, most of the slaves don't know how to read and write. So, news. I mean, it's it, he thinks word of mouth or something will spread by wildfire. But of course, I mean, he attacks a federal institution, and uh, some of the irony here is that they, a uh, um, Robert E. Lee uh, leads the forces that eventually uh, capture recapture Harper's Ferry, and and uh, John Brown is hung. Now, the actual immediate uh, precipitator of the Civil War is the election of Abraham I'm Lincoln. Not, I, I'm not quite done with John Brown yet. Okay, go to John I, Brown, I and some... I want to talk about the election of All Abraham right. Lincoln. Because John Brown then gives the South a bad guy, right? Now there is this- Well, they've this... always been afraid of slave rebellions. Right, right. And now John Brown is their evidence. Yeah. Everyone in the North is John Brown. You're all John Brown. Matter of fact, it became illegal- in the South, even for, in the, for the post office to mail abolitionist materials. It would be destroyed at the post office. Um, if you were a sympathizer of John Brown in the South, it could cost you your life. This is now a face for the South to grab a hold of that everyone in the North is John Brown. Um, John Brown uh, is hanged on December 2nd, 1859. He doesn't say anything from the gallows, but he does hand his executioner a note. And he says, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because I found like there's a connection here. If we look at Lincoln's second inaugural address in 1865, Lincoln says, yet... If God wills that it continue the war until all the wealth piled up by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, still it must be said today, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So it's kind of interesting that in 1858, Brown is talking about being purged with blood in 1865 at the end of the war. Lincoln is saying that's exactly what has happened. That's what happened. Frederick Douglass says of John Brown, John Brown's zeal in the cause of freedom was infinitely superior to mine. Mine was as, as a taper light. His was like the burning sun. I could live for the slave. John Brown could die for him. So for the North, John Brown becomes this hero. For the to, Northern abolitionist. Hero to some enemy to others. Right. He is, as uh, a historian that Melville says, Herman Melville calls him the meteor of the war. He is the one announcing that the war has begun. Right. All right, there. I got that off my chest. No, that's, no, that's, right. that's great. Mm-hmm. And in a, I, I think it sets the atmosphere, uh, talking about the raid on Harper's Ferry and what John Brown meant to what was going on in the country. And the country was divided on this question of slavery, and it was divided uh, politically. And one of the uh, only times in our history this is going to allow a third party to get elected. And that third party in the election of 1860 is a party that started out in 1856, and that is the Republican Party. And they're uh, the second Republican to run for office uh, of, of the office of the presidency was Abraham Who was Lincoln. the first Republican? Uh, John Fremont. Very good. 1856. Yeah. Ran against Buchanan. And Buchanan wins that election a lot because, by the way, the, before let's back up a second and talk about the party that replaces, the party that was replaced 
by the Republican Party. Well, there's a, yeah. It's, it's the Whigs. A, it's the Whigs. Lincoln originally was a Whig. Yeah. And it's the Whigs have broken apart on right. the question of slavery. Exactly. So it's, it's sort of abolitionist Whigs or, or anti-slavery Whigs and ex-free soilers. And the free soilers were a party based uh, on their opposition against the expansion of slavery. That's they wanted free soil. Right. So even the Republican Party is, you even hesitate to call it a third party because it, it, it comes onto the scene so fast, replaces right. the Whigs. So the election of 1852 would have been Democrat versus Whig. By 1856, it's Democrat versus Republican. Um, everybody knew that a vote for the Republican president was a vote for disunion. Um, politics was, was the last thread holding this country together. You had Northern Whigs and Southern Whigs. You had Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats. We weren't sectional yet in our politics, but the Democratic, but the Republican Party was. There was no such thing as a Southern Republican. Um, and in 1856, Buchanan wins in a large part because Northerners aren't ready to vote Republican. They're not ready to throw the union away quite yet. 1860, it is different. Fremont loses in 56, but Lincoln in 1860 is going to win with only 40% of the vote. Right. Uh, He didn't win the popular vote. He wins through the Electoral College. And he comes into office, and sometimes Lincoln is criticized for this. Uh, he, but he comes into office and he doesn't promise any action against slavery where it exists. He says in his first inaugural address, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so. And he goes on to say, I have no inclination to do so. He also even stated that he would enforce the Fugitive Slave Act as it was written into the Constitution, the, the first Fugitive Slave Act. So he, he comes into office saying uh, he, he has no intention of touching slavery where it exists. But it is a party, the Republican Party, that contains people who believe in free soil. Right. So, a- so basically— what Southerners are worried about is there can be no more expansion of slavery. And they go back to their old fear. The Union will eventually have so much more wealth and population and political power and votes in the House of Representatives and in the Senate that eventually they'll just vote to get rid of our, you know, what they consider their great way of life. And the, 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 yeah, to go back to what you were saying, the the Republican platform of 1860, that the maintenance of the rights of states, and especially the right of each state to order and control its own domestic institution according to its own judgment exclusively, is essential to the balance of power. Right. But as you point out, it doesn't make any difference because the South here is none of that. Right. The South just knows that whatever you say now really doesn't matter because in 10, 20 years, five years, you're going to use this power to get rid of the institution. Today is expansion of slavery. Tomorrow, it is slavery. Right. And very shortly after the election, on November 9th, 1860, the South Carolina General Assembly passed a resolution to call the election of Abraham Lincoln as U.S. president a hostile act. Now, when I was in I didn't know that. I mean, they just said the election of the president was a hostile act toward, toward the South Carolina. Well, if you're, if you're a South Carolinian or anybody in the South, you now have— Lincoln received zero votes in the South. <laughs> he didn't even appear on the ballot. Right. In he the wasn't South. allowed. They didn't allow right. him to appear on the and ballot. And he still someplace. won the presidency. So with that, 
The North now controls the House of Representatives. The North controls the Senate. The North controls the presidency. And eventually the North will control all of the Supreme Court. And they don't need a damn Southern vote to do any of it. The South sees this as there is no other choice but to leave the Union to save our, what they would call their peculiar institution, their their uh, slave system. Seven Southern states vote immediately to secede from the Union. And it's interesting to see their theory of secession was based on the process of ratifying the Constitution. The Constitution uh, needed to be ratified on a state-by-state basis. And, and, and that's the way it was ratified. So their theory was that if we came in on a state-by-state vote, we get to leave by a state-by-state vote. We came in as states, we'll leave at states. This is uh, sometimes why people say, well, the, 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 the Civil War was a states' rights issue. Now, I, you have to be careful about that because you've got to remember they supported the federal enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act. So they supported going into states where the vast majority of people disapproved of slavery, didn't have slavery, and taking their property back. So I don't, I don't know exactly how much they believed in states' rights uh, per se. They certainly believed that they, slaves should be property and treated as such. Um, but Lincoln's view of the sovereignty of the new nation formed by the Constitution was different than the Southerners. Uh, he saw the words uh, in the Constitution, and most people, many people know, <laughs> most people now, many people know how the Constitution preamble starts. And it bases the sovereign, the power of the new government on we, the people. So Lincoln's theory about the Constitution is you can't go state by state. Yeah, they had to ratify the Constitution, but there's nothing in the Constitution that says you get out of it. Now that you've joined, there's nothing in there that says you can leave by. That's an assumption that the Southerners make. And what he says, it does say we the people. So now if you can get the majority of people to vote to leave the union, maybe that's okay. But we're a a new nation. We are based on the power of something new, the the totality of the American people. And Lincoln goes on to say that... There and no government ever written into that government is a way to get rid of that government. And per- perpetuity is implied. The the idea this union is going to last forever is implied. And no government is it actually written into the document. Well, if you want to get rid of this, this is what you're going to do. Lincoln even goes on to say, okay, South, let's go to the contract theory that you're using. Isn't it true that to end a contract, you need both parties to agree to that? We don't agree to it. Right. So therefore- The no, American people don't right. agree. Yeah. So either way, your idea of leaving the union is false. It's implied that this thing that this is permanent. Uh, we do not agree to a separation. And then Lincoln goes on to, da- to, to talk about how impractical it is. You are sowing the seeds of your own demise. If you, if we, if you leave, if you secede from us, what then you create a precedent that when the minority is unhappy, you simply secede from the majority. And then what do you end up with? And Lincoln was right on this because during the war, I think it's Georgia that tries to secede from the Confederacy because they were not happy with what the, the Confederacy was doing. Um, well, even after the war, I think is it Jefferson Davis proposes an epitaph for the to be written on the Southern <laughs> tombstone and 
But here lies the South, died of a theory of, yes. a, of a confederacy where each state would be free to do what they want, which is not an efficient way of fighting a war, as the founders knew from fighting the Revolutionary War under the Articles of Confederation. And Lincoln goes on to say things like, we, we're neighbors. You think you can't get your slaves back now? You think you're going to get your slaves back when we're different countries? I mean, you think trade's hard now? You think it's going to be easier when we're different countries? He's like, you... He's trying to be pragmatic to a group of people. I don't know who he's really talking to here. Is he talking to Southerners or is he talking to Northerners to make the argument that we aren't the bad guys here? And, and I think that's a very good question. And I think this that leads us to uh, the heart of the argument. What's this civil war about? Is it about slavery or is it about tariffs? Is it about states' rights? And I think right now, as we look at these states secede from the Union, we can go right to the heart of what that the war was about. Because they, they didn't leave and go. They, they actually told us why they were leaving the Union, didn't they? I mean, they, yeah. they, they just well, didn't that, leave and yeah, in the Articles of Succession, right. the first state to secede South Carolina. And again, it mentions explicitly that one of their reasons for secession was the failure of the northern states to enforce the fugitive slave provision of the Constitution. And again, here, is this about states' rights? Well, their states' rights, but maybe not the people in, in, in other states. And it says the government itself has made destructive of them by the action of the non-slaveholding states. Those states have assumed the right of deciding upon the property of our domestic institution and have denied the rights of property established in 15 of the states and recognized by the Constitution. They have denounced as sinful the institution of slavery. So what does South Carolina mention as the basis for, the, for their state right to secede? It's slavery. We can go on to Mississippi. In the Articles of Secession, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. <laughs> its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and more, most important portions of the commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions, and by imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world, and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. So here you see, it's interesting, they acknowledge the, the monetary, the, the, the economic value right. of the slaves. But, but they say that, that's our reason for we got to hold on to them. So what's this war about? According to the states that are seceding, it's about slavery. Alexander Stevens in 1861, he's going to be the future vice president of the Confederacy. He states in what becomes known as the Cornerstone Speech, he says the new constitution of the Confederacy has put arrest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution. African slavery as it exists among us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and the present revolution. Jefferson in his forecast had anticipated that this rock upon which the old union would split. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas of Jefferson. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery's subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. 
Yeah. So, so the vice president of the South says this war is about slavery. That's, he says it. It's not, nobody's putting those words in his mouth. And he's also saying specifically, he's refuting Jefferson's idea, the Universal Declaration of Rights contained in uh, the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. He says, no, they're not. No, they're not. We don't believe that as Southerners. And this is a touching, this author, I think I mentioned in the last podcast of George Fitzhugh, of talking about slavery being a positive good. This is the full maturation of that idea. If slavery is a, is a positive, slavery is natural. Now the Confederacy is going to rest its whole government on that cornerstone of racial superiority. Um, and this is important because this is going to play a role in post-Civil War, that when you try to legislate equality for freed slaves, you can't legislate for people to believe that slaves are their equal. And that is going to be a huge problem in the post-Civil War. The laws are easy to pass. Changing people's hearts and minds are what is very, very difficult. Well, and, and a couple other things just to mention uh, uh, bolstering, I think, the irrefutable argument that the, the, the cause of the Civil War was slavery. And that one of the things is, is how these uh, states voted uh, for secession. The only state of the South— This that, is interesting. You, we talked about this earlier. Yeah, yeah, and that, this is something I didn't—this is, this is a really good point. I, I enjoyed this piece of information. But the only state that held an actual popular vote of the question of secession was North Carolina. And the secessionists were defeated by a vote of uh, 47,323 to 46,672. So it was close, but the secessionists were defeated. And the unionists who, uh, who won the day uh, were from the northeastern counties and most of the Piedmont and western counties of North Carolina. In other words, places where slavery either wasn't practiced or it was rare. And the people in the Tidewater and a little bit of the Piedmont, they voted to have slaves. So how do we know it's about slavery? The Southerners who didn't own slaves didn't vote for it. Where else can you see that? Well, Virginia. Um, they held three votes for secession. And, and, and as in North Carolina, it was only after the Union call for troops, after the bombardment of Fort Sumter, that North Carolina and Virginia eventually did get a vote for secession. But as in North Carolina, whole, the whole part of Western Virginia voted to stay in the Union. They didn't vote to secede. Why? Because they weren't slaves. They weren't dependent upon the slave economy. And eventually, uh, West Virginia is going to become a new state. They're going to secede from the secessionists. And so, again, you see the Southerners themselves making this about slavery. If you didn't own slaves, you, stayed, you want to stay in the Union. It right. wasn't worth it to you to fight. And there's one other thing. This carried on through the fighting of the Civil War. Many Southerners from areas that had few slaves fought on the side of the Union. I had a great-great-grandfather, Thomas Jackson Coleman, and he was born in the hills of Tennessee, a place where slavery was practiced rarely, and most people made their existence on small farms. He joined a Union regiment, the 17th Kentucky Cavalry. And this is something I found interesting, even in Alabama. Alabama, which I think most of us consider the heart of the Deep South, Alabama and Mississippi. You had the 1st Regiment Alabama Cavalry. It was mustered in at Huntsville, the northern and hilly part of the state. And they fought on the Union side throughout the Civil War. In fact, they became Sherman's ex escort 
on its march to the sea. Really? Yeah. So it's even after secession, which people who didn't own slaves didn't vote for, you had Southerners who said, no, we're, we're going to fight on the side of the Union. They knew it was about slavery. And then the people who fought on the side of the Union were from places where slavery wasn't critical to the uh, economy. Yeah, Lincoln even says uh, in his second inaugural address, one-eighth of the whole population was colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union even by war. This is a, cl- this is a closed debate. Um, and we're going to talk about um, we're we're going to talk about later on about the lost cause and why how this is lost to history, but it is about slavery. Hook, line, and sinker is about slavery, um, and there's no other way around that. In our next podcast, we're going to talk more specifically about how slavery impacts the war. Um, we're going to talk about the Emancipation Proclamation and how slavery is going to become a driving force that's going to influence policy, presidents, and amendments. All right. All right. So that wraps up the pod for um, on this part, on the causes of the war. We want to talk a little bit about day two of the Battle of Gettysburg since we are in Gettysburg. If you remember, day one uh, was about Buford holding ground north of the uh, the town on the high ground, retreating back through the town, um, and ending up again on the high ground, uh, which the North held. And Lee then had to make a decision on whether he was going to attack or whether he was going to retreat. And he decides to attack the high ground. And this brings us day two of the Battle of Gettysburg. Right. And at this time, I mean, uh, what you wanted, the the... the Strength of the army uh, lied in its continuity and sticking together where you could have united uh, musketry fire and cannon fire on, on the enemy. And you probe for, either for holes in the line or to get around it. And the Union uh, occupied the high ground that Buford had hoped they would. And the right side of the Union line was anchored on Culp's Hill and it extended to Little Round Top on the left. Lee attacked the flanks. He was repulsed uh, on Culp's Hill on the right and also on the left where the Chamberlain uh, and the 20th Maine made a famous stand on Little Round Top. And the line seemed to be holding the supplies in the rear, uh, the wagon trains of the Union seemed to be safe. Um, the... <laughs> you got to be a general in different ways back then, and the Union had a General Sickles, who was, I believe, from New York. He was kind of a political appointee, and he decided on his own uh, that he would take his corps and move out and f- <laughs> off the high ground <laughs> and down into the wheat field in Peach Orchard uh, and fight the rebels there. And if you're staying on top of... Um little round top, which you can, yeah. and you can look out. You have to be asking, what the hell is he thinking? <laughs> yeah. Well, you can see the, the wheat field and peach wood yeah. from the high ground. It's like, why would he do that? And we don't know all the answers, maybe, uh, you know, uh, but he did it. 
Uh, one of the interesting things is is he got sh- uh, hit and uh, he lost his leg and he was proud of his leg and he kept it mummified and liked to show visitors <laughs> that would come to see him. But what he did was endanger the whole Union Army because now there's a hole you could go through and you could drive through and possibly capture the supply train behind it. You could divide the Union Army. And there was a good general, uh, General Hancock, who was saw this uh, hole develop. Uh, unfortunately, the Confederates had seen the hole, too. Apparently, the whole Union line saw it. Yeah. Like, the whole Union line, it's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> well, they saw him out fighting right. in front. And Hancock ran over there and uh, rode over there. And, and uh, he, there were two... Uh, uh, Southern regiments marching right for the hole, and they were, and he didn't have uh, hardly any people over there. And there was one unit, the first uh, Minnesota regiment, who had been the first regiment to be mustered in from Minnesota. And what he did is he ordered them to attack. Now, normally you would stay there, but his his idea was, well, they needed to attack out in front because they needed a delay, well, so he could get other units to move in behind them. So they were a veteran unit. They immediately attacked uh, a much larger force, and they, it cost them 82% of their regiment in just a few minutes. And what this shows you is a lot of things, uh, how incredibly brave these men in the Civil War were. And part of that is, if you read about warfare, what drives soldiers in the middle of a battle is loyalty to the person next to them. And uh, and not wanting to shame them, not wanting to shame your buddy who's fighting next to you. And that during the Civil War, they had what they call uh, amazing unit cohesion because these people knew each other. A lot of people knew each other before the Civil War. <laughs> they would see each other. Well, after they signed the Civil up War. as towns, right? Right, and towns so, and areas. So, which is problematic when you get a, a huge. Uh, casualty rate like that, a whole town's young men could be wiped out. Right. And literally you'd have family members. And, right. and as the first Minnesota did, and during this uh, attack, uh, John and Isaac Taylor, who were brothers, uh, attacked. John was the older brother who had promised to take care and look after uh, his younger brother when they joined the service and would write letters home to his uh, parents about them. Now, uh, after the attack, they didn't have, I mean, they got pushed back and they didn't have time to, uh, you know, uh, check the battlefield for casualties. But John noticed that Isaac was missing. And uh, after uh, the action had ended there, and, and I think actually it was uh, after the, uh, during the third day, he, he went back and he found that Isaac Taylor, his brother, had been shot through the head there. And so he had this poignant moment and Isaac, uh, as as people did back then, uh, they were buried near where they fell. Right. And uh, and so John lost his brother Isaac. And I think this, you know, we talk about the Civil War, and it seems an abstraction. I think for most people, or but this brings it to the human level. Like, what were these people sacrificing? for this war and what were they and they were willing to sacrifice themselves and their family members both sides for these causes that they believe in uh for the south it was the right to have uh you know their independence and that independence including organized slaves and for john and isaac taylor it was the the right to um 
the, the necessity of preserving the Union and by this time getting rid of slavery because by this time the Emancipation Pro- uh, Proclamation had been passed and the war was a crusade to get rid of, uh, would become a crusade to end slavery. This is the high watermark both in the idea of the Southerners coming north. It's also the high watermark of the Confederacy and their possibility of winning. Um, Lee will never make it back into Northern Territory again. Uh, the South will never be in better uh, military position as it was here in Gettysburg. This is a huge moment. And part of that is sometimes in history, you don't know the moment when you're in it. Um, the soldiers here at Gettysburg did. They knew the importance of what was happening here. And I think it's also part of the reason why you see the unbelievable bravery of guys who were committing suicide. And they knew they were committing suicide, but they knew that their death was needed to save the Union. Um, And the more stories you read from this war and lots of wars, this self-sacrifice of soldiers on both sides is humbling Um, especially when you're sitting here in the middle of the battlefield. So that's pod two guys from Gettysburg. Um, We're going to leave it here. So thanks for tuning in. We're going to come back next week with pod three and then pod four, and that will be our Gettysburg series. And then we'll be getting back into some of the old stuff. Maybe by then we'll have the whole Brett Kavanaugh uh, Supreme Court nominee worked out. They'll have a few comments on that. Until next time, look us up on Facebook, drop us an email, let us know what you think. Thanks a lot.